Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we go deep into mining news, hot topics, and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International and Mining International Executive, a leading global mining recruitment and headhunting agency. Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Geek, the mining podcast. And today's guest is Kathleen Moore, who's an experienced executive within the mining and metal sector and has experience in commodity markets, equities and finance, and was previously the COO of Barrett Gold covering their North American region. Um, She has a geology and earth science degree from Cambridge. And we're going to discuss a wide range of topics, including industry competitiveness, investment, women in mining, and much more. So that's welcome, Kathleen, to the podcast. How are you doing, Kathleen? Very well, and thank you for having me. No, appreciate your time as well. Uh, I know you're I know you're a busy, busy person. So for those that don't know you, I just wanted to just tell us a little bit about your career, about your background. Um, you've been in, obviously, investment banking, um, and then you moved into um, working in, within the mining industry. So I just wanted to give... Uh, the audience and overview of, of your uh, career? Well, you can't accuse me of being an investment banker. I was in fund management. They're very okay. different. <laughs> in finance, yes. Uh, well, as you said, so I, I studied geology or specialised in geology as an undergraduate and then decided that mining was more interesting than oil and gas. So did a mining master's at Imperial, actually, a mineral project appraisal, um, really with the aim of getting that financial evaluation aspect um, that was lacking in the the sort of more technical geological background that I'd had. And that led me into the city. So I then spent 12 years at BlackRock, what was first Merrill Lynch Investment Managers, and then got taken over by BlackRock. And it was a fantastic experience. So I joined there just at the bottom of the last cycle, so 2002, 2003, and watched you know, what was a relatively unloved sector, particularly the gold space at the time. And and because we had established funds, we had the, um, uh, what was the Merrill Lynch Golden General Fund and the Merrill Lynch World Mining Trusts that became the BlackRock equivalents, um, really start to um, gather momentum because they had the track record and the experience, established team, and then were able to really um, take advantage of the China super cycle and the impact that was having on commodity prices and more importantly, on the mining sector. And so learned a lot very quickly, um, got to go to amazing places. So I covered the former Soviet Union and was going to places like Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, um, Kyrgyzstan, uh, got to go to Vale's assets in Brazil, really got, got, to, got to go to all of the cutting edge front of um, the sort of sector um, geological um, uh, frontiers uh, and understand the investments there and what the opportunities were and see them going from exploration developments then through the pains, uh, uh, trials and tribulations of development into, into production. Went through the financial crisis, came out the other side of the financial crisis, then into the sort of second part of the bull market, um, and really began to see um, whether the promises were being delivered upon by the mining industry. And what we saw was, as with all these things, is is that the 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 chase for growth at the time. Um, meant that the discipline associated with investing that capital, the practical implications of trying to build that much that quickly across uh, the globe, um, and the um, 
obviously challenging position that when that supply comes online, what the impact is going to be on prices and what happens when the Chinese economy doesn't grow at 10.5% per annum and what are the consequences on demand when all of that supply is coming online. It taught me a lot about um, uh, the importance of risk, the importance of long-term pricing, the importance of being a good a custodian of shareholder capital, the importance of environmental um, and social license to operate and how the successful projects were the ones that were able to balance the qualitative with the quantitative, were, be able, were able to deliver wealth gain to communities. You know, all of the conversations that we're having now uh, in the markets about ESG, you know, that previous uh, experience really gave me firsthand knowledge of what what good companies were, what bad companies were, and and ultimately helped inform my own um, views on, on, you know, how to run a business, how to to, um, uh, manage those often conflicting constraints. And so when I got the opportunity in 2015 to join Barrick, uh, it was a great time because markets were flatlining, gold prices had fallen. uh, I took the view that they'd hit, hit were close to their bottom. I accepted the role at Barrick, I think, in May, uh, and the bottom of the gold market was in November. And I remember because I I, I was off at the time, um, or I, I'd just come out of having a baby, uh, had just joined Barrick, and I thought, what am I doing? Gold prices are 1,050. And fair enough, I thought it was the bottom, but I didn't think it was going to carry on going down. Luckily, that was the bottom. And then we saw the gold price pick off. So it was both for me a sort of asset allocation decision with my career that the gold cycle was changing and also that Barrick with very high quality assets you know a straight a stressed balance sheet but ultimately a business that was was unique in the gold sector was very well positioned to benefit uh, from a rising gold price uh, it really seemed to me an opportunity to to put um to put some of what I'd learned into practice and and then spending 6 years 3 years as CFO and then three years in operations under Mark Bristow, who you know is hugely experienced, and was one of those companies that had successfully taken a company from uh, an explorer developer into a producer over that previous decade. Uh, for me, it was it was such a fantastic learning opportunity. And then in twenty twenty two, I decided to see what other industries can teach me. Uh, and really, whether the challenges associated with the mining industry, that boom-bust cycle, the need to invest over long-term, how to manage risk uh, when when committing to those long-term projects, whether that's the same thing that we see in other industries, the search for talent, uh, trying to attract good people, uh, trying to define your purpose in today's society. You know, all of that led me to just seeing what else was out there, and and uh, I've just started in the power sector, and and it equally is as fascinating to me as the mining industry still is. Um, so obviously you were a successful fund manager. What made you move into the mining industry? Obviously, uh, you mentioned obviously the gold price was was hopefully at the lowest, which it was. Uh, but what made you move into the mining sector and want to work for a, a miner? Well, I think for me, the critical thing was every day as part of my job for 12 years, I would meet management teams of mining companies, whether it was junior explorers or it was the CEO of Rio Tinto on their quarterly roadshows. We would sit across the table and we would ask them questions as if we knew what the answers were. Uh, And first as an analyst, I'd sit quietly and just make notes. 
And then as I became a more senior fund manager, I was the one asking the questions and I was the one critiquing and, you know, piling pressure on when the share price was down and lauding them when the share price was up. But ultimately, I, I particularly after the um, uh, we saw the rollover in, in the bull market in that China super cycle and this importance of what is the right long-term pricing to assume, how do you manage risk when you're dealing with governments, when you're dealing with communities, when you're dealing with very different stakeholders, I realized that actually a lot of the problems that were caused, you know, this rush to invest, that growth at growth's sake, not understanding um, the value at risk and the expecting perfect execution uh, on projects, um, this, this question on what is the right um, equilibrium price to assume when you're investing over a decade or 20 years or 30 years. And also the the definition of value. You know, in, in finance, you're obsessed by discounted cash flows. But actually, from a risk perspective, perhaps better not to put all your capex up front in order to deliver your value up front, but perhaps better to phase your investments in order to manage the risk and build relationships and then establish a presence in a country. So all of those questions, I began to question myself and actually say, well, do I know what I'm talking about? And, and so for me, um, the, the, the opportunity came to step into management's shoes and, and from a credibility perspective and on the basis that it would make me potentially a better investor in the future, I could always come back to it. It just seemed a chance for me to literally put my money where my mouth was and say, well, can I do it any better? Um, you mentioned obviously Mark Bristow. Um, what would what would you say now? Obviously, you've uh, you're not with Barrett. What kind of things did you learn from him, um, or t- take away um, from obviously work, working alongside? Obviously, arguably one of the um, sort of more senior, well, one of the senior figures within the mining industry. I think one of the biggest things I took away both from him because he articulated it clearly, but I think more broadly from my experience at Barrick, is the need to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And what I mean by that is if you have stakeholders that want you there, so whether it's local communities, uh, in the case of Nevada, um, the state government, um, you know, whether it's emerging markets or developed markets, I think essentially those are your big your big stakeholders, the government and and uh, uh, your communities, if they want you to be there, if they need you to be there in order to thrive, then you're you're much more likely to be successful. The discount rate you apply to your investments are much lower than the market would price. And that's your ability to add value and create value, is that essentially you de-risk uh, your projects in a way that you know, will add value over time as the market begins to recognize that you'll grow your NAV as a result. And and I don't think that's taught anywhere in any textbook, is that 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 ability to define the risk outcome based on the way you operate and the way you engage and how you define the contribution you're going to make. And it's not always monetary. You know, it's across um the spectrum from social investments to uh, employment, to taxes. Um, It's the nature of how you contribute to the the communities that you're within and that you become essential to to their being able to fund their own aspirations. 
I think I think that was the biggest lesson, and I, and I think you saw that in the early Rangold days and establishing themselves in Africa, and it was the reason they were able to operate in Mali, in Cote d'Ivoire, in in areas that that were very risky in comparison to uh, other countries, but yet they constantly delivered uh, day in day out, and that is just as true in Ontario, in Alaska. In Nevada, uh, and so that philosophy, I think, is is the biggest takeaway I've got from from my experience at Barrick. Um, you're from a finance background. Um, it seems funding is a little bit tight at the moment. Um, so I just wonder why why that is, um, and what do you sort of see happening uh, to bring more li- liquidity? Sorry, uh, more capital into into the industry. Well, I think there are two aspects to this. There's the sort of immediate what you could describe as tactical or, or cyclical issue. And then there's the structural one. So the, the 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 first is around people's expectations of where commodity prices are going from here. And, and specifically, the gold sector is particularly challenged, I think, because with all of the chaos that we're seeing today, inflation, interest rates, effectively, what the market is telling you is that it's better to own the dollar, that you'll get a better real rate of return owning the dollar than you will by owning gold and that real interest rates are rising faster than inflation is going to impact them. The assumption, I, th- I presume, if you take that the, the, the gold price is, is a, a direction of the market sentiment, is that ultimately the central banks will gain control. We're not facing runaway inflation and therefore better to hold a currency that will deliver you a, 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 good, a good return than own gold that doesn't give, deliver you any kind of return. So until that dynamic changes, and I think it will, I I think ultimately stores of value, as we've seen since the financial crisis, um, are increasingly important. That 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 focus on diversification, you're diversifying your wealth away from traditional investments. I think is a theme that we've seen across uh, the whole of the um, uh, investment space. I think therefore gold is not, um, you know, something that that does not. You know, I, I don't think it's going to collapse, but how do you encourage investors to see that uh, that turnaround is coming? When is it coming? And how do you position your company to benefit from that? One of the biggest challenges gold companies always face is that they outperform in a down market, um, but that's when people don't own gold equities. They own gold equities in an up market. So what you're doing is establishing your credibility for them to be bought in an up market. So, so that's where I think the gold industry needs to focus is establishing that credibility in in, in protecting value uh, during a period where the gold price isn't actually delivering um, beta. So that's the first sort of tactical one. Uh, And for other commodities, you're facing something similar because we're all worried about recession. I think the obvious opportunities are the ones that are structurally going to benefit from the net transition and and from really the electrification of um, the developed world, which is likely to happen over the next 20 years. I speak as someone who's in power, so obviously I'm, I'm pro that. Um, the structural one around investment management actually is the lack of quality investors and quality analysts. So one of the things that also led me out of fund management was that active investing uh, was under threat. That unless you could deliver hedge fund-like returns, uh, you were then pushing to passive. So it was becoming a barbell environment in the investment world where it was either alternative investments, hedge funds, or passive equities. That that 
that middle ground of benchmark plus active managers that we'd all got used to over the last 30 to 40 years is I don't believe it's going to you know exist. It's a, it's a shrinking part of the overall market, and what that means is that there are fewer people looking at that mid tier small cap to mid cap space, and un- unless you can really deliver a, a groundbreaking return that a hedge fund is going to be excited by, it's going to be hard to really raise capital in in public equity markets. Um, so, so that I think is a structural challenge, and and ultimately one eventually I think passive management will lead to problems that will encourage active managers back, but it may take a while. How was Barrick as a company? And and I suppose what were, as what you saw, what were some of the good things they were good at? Um, and what can sort of other mining companies learn from their governance and also in their operations? I think the, um, the fundamental thing that Barrick was good at was having good geology. And, and that was really what began Barrick, you know, under the Peter Monk era, was establishing itself by luck or judgment. I won't, uh, I won't judge uh, in, in, in areas of huge geological potential. And Nevada is a great example of that. I think the story is always that um, uh, Barrick bought Gold Strike with only something like 300,000 ounces of reserves. And it's produced over the areas produced over 40 you know, million ounces, or I can't remember the number, but it's some ridiculously large number. And and really, what it was able to do was establish itself in this in this real um, you know geological giant territory. And some of that understanding of the ore bodies was lost. And I think that's where Barrick began to lose its way in the sort of two thousands onwards, the late two thousands, where it became acquisition hungry rather than focusing on the assets that it had. Um, and what's interesting since the merger with um, with the Rangod team is that is that focus on geology and really understanding the, the ore body and understanding what it's capable of, and therefore de-risking your existing production, but also creating, you know, for free essentially huge upside, geological upside in terms of discovering and replacing reserves going forward. I think that for me is the is the 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 thing that the Barrick does best and ultimately uh, differentiates it from really any other mining company. There are very few other gold mining companies with that kind of asset base that can deliver that. So that was the first thing. I think the second is around this understanding of its role within the communities it plays. I think that's particularly true um, with regards to the way the team approach Africa. And I think it's something that we have always understood in Nevada and North America. I think we are now bringing that back to, or I say we, I'm not there anymore. They are bringing that back to other regions and and areas that have been difficult, such as Papua New Guinea and Latin America. I think bringing that focus of how do we align properly, how are we transparent, uh, particularly in an environment where the truth is often not what governments and communities want to hear. They want to be promised the world. Um, So actually telling them the hard and cold truth about what's possible I think that is something that the team is is really focused on and doing well. And I think the the, the last thing that um, that Barrick's been good at is 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 leadership is actually setting um, some of the conversations the industry needs to have, um, whether it's around tailings dams or you know lots of different different issues, um, both from an ESG perspective, but also a reserves resources perspective, actually having um, proper conversations and, and leading the way for, for the gold industry to, to establish itself as a, as a grown-up industry. 
What did you learn from the other side of the fence uh, that you didn't understand while you invested in uh, in companies? Uh, well, I think very flippantly, it's very easy to make bad decisions and very hard to make good decisions. And what I mean by that is the pressure to make short-term decisions that seem, you know, to hit your budgets, to give people what they ask, um, to promise things that you know you don't think you can deliver, but you just hold your breath and hope that you will. You know, the 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 pressure on management to to make short-term decisions at the expense of long-term decisions is enormous. And it comes from everyone, every stakeholder, government, community, investor. Everyone wants you to deliver something now and not worry about the future. And that actually, if you want to run a good company and you want to create value over time, you have to think about the long-term and you have to understand the consequence on any decision you make today. And you have to prepare today and often make decisions that cost you money today in order to deliver value in the future. And I don't think I had any clue just how much that pressure to make short-term decisions destroy shareholder value over the long-term was. Um, And so that for me, you know, it's made me a stronger person as a result to be able to stand up to that pressure and push back and articulate why you have to do something that's not immediately popular to whichever stakeholder that you're you're sitting across the table from has been a really, you know, for me, a a sort of, um, what's the word, Uh, not to sound too philosophical, but it's made me a better person, I think, as a result. You're currently the managing director of SSE Thermal, um, and you've been in the role for six months. First of all, I suppose, what made you move into uh, away from mining into power? How does it compare to the mining industry? And what what can, I suppose, from, from what you can see within after six months, what can the mining industry learn from, from the power industry? So what's interesting um, and a big difference, and I think is probably true um, for any industry, um, but but what's interesting about power is that it's it's mining without all of the geology and the mining. So so when I think about what's involved in building a power station, when I think about engaging with government, obviously now in given the the sort of energy crisis and and security of supply issues and being part of the solution as well as part of the problem, you know, all of that is very similar. You know, the 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 impact of external shocks on commodity prices, the impact of fl- inflation, supply chain, you know, none of all of this I've seen before and dealt with before. And, and had to manage before. But what's not involved is the complexity, the risk, the unknowns of how you're creating the value in the first place. So, so I know that the power station works. You know, I know that if we put gas into a gas turbine, that that will generate heat and electricity and that the off gases I can then put into a boiler and that creates steam that generates power from a steam turbine. You know, these are things that you just know and they're true every day. The thing that mining is unique about and oil and gas, I suppose, as well, is no one knows exactly what is going on underground. 
And it, there's always this joke that the worst thing you can ever do to a deposit is drill it, because then you start defining and limiting the value associated with that asset. And, and Mark Bristow always used to make a joke, which is geologists are the only people that add value. Everyone else detracts value because that ounce of gold in the ground is worth its maximum before you mine it, before you process it, before you sell it. And so what's interesting to me is just the complexity associated with that upstream geological risk that you take is then on top of all of the other risks that you take in any other industry. So that's the first thing. The second thing, though, is, um, and it may be ultimately related to the first, is that the willingness to innovate, the willingness to take risk, the willingness to um, constantly push the boundaries of what is possible seem to be much greater in a different industry. Now, that may be because the point at which I've entered the industry is just as we enter this uh, net zero journey and the commitments the board and the executive are making in terms of cutting edge, edge technology, putting capital at risk, um, DevX, as they call it, the talent coming in, you know, the, the outlook of that talent, the sort of mindsets of that talent and what they want to do, what they want to bring to every day. The, the, the energy, excuse the pun, seems to be much greater. And, and I find that I don't know whether that's a mining industry-wide thing, whether that was a North American thing, whether that was a barrack thing. Um, but, but that's if you could capture that enthusiasm and define that purpose that I see that people who ultimately aren't getting paid as much as they were getting paid in the mining industry to do similar jobs, but they do it because they they they've just got a different outlook on life and a different energy as to the contribution they're going to make. Um, uh, that has been fascinating to me and 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 something that uh, I, I I would you know I wonder about how do you replicate for the mining industry, which which I think does have a talent challenge. How do you attract new talent into and quality talent into the industry? What advice would you give any females that want to sort of move up the corporate ladder and move into executive management? Um, I suppose as a recruiter, you do see there is sometimes not not necessarily that easy path into executive management for females. Hopefully it, it is getting better. But what advice would you give um, females within the industry that are striving striving to reach sort of senior management? Um, it's a challenging question. I think the advice I would give is, um, you know, there's the warm and cuddly advice, which is be confident, you know, don't ever feel that you can't do a role just because you don't have the specific experience. But I think that the that's that's not helpful if people aren't willing to look at you. The, the challenge I've always faced stepping into the mining industry is that it's always been presumed I was a risk, you know, because I didn't have a conventional background it would be impossible for me to have a conventional background because i you know i wasn't going to compromise my life which is ultimately what the mining industry is asking men and women to do which is to make a choice in terms of working on site uh, being located in certain places 
um, being away from your family for periods of times, you know, you're being forced into making those compromises. And often women have chosen not to make those compromises. And therefore, the nature of their CV is not going to be a typically conventional CV with, you know, 10 years of operating experience, you know, being on site as a GM for a period of time, you know, all of the things that when I got the role as COO of North America, I had investors. You know, I remember sitting in a meeting at the BMO conference with Mark Bristow and Mark having to defend the choice of me as COO because I didn't have a conventional background. You know, so so the important thing is to be able to articulate why that doesn't matter. What else do you bring to the role? And who have you got around you from a team perspective that mitigates the risk, which I don't actually believe is there because there are plenty of very uninspiring conventional um, executives around in the mining industry. So one mitigates any perceived risk, but ultimately clearly articulates the value that you bring to the role. So if you if you can create that narrative and you can articulate that clearly to any potential employer, I think it makes a big difference because I think the industry is looking for change. And so, you know, having more women involved is a very physical, symbolic um, sign of that change. And I know that that was a factor in why I was asked to join Barrick by John Thornton is because he wanted to very clearly and illustrate that he was changing the way the company was being run and being a woman, being English and not coming up the conventional route was a very clear message to the Canadian and, and US market for Barrick that that was the case. So that was the first role. The other um, the other thing, whether it's positive or negative, is that what I, what I have found, and I don't think it's unique to Barrick, but it was definitely true um, there, um, but it was true also at my time in the city in London. Uh, I found it's less true now, but I think it is is true uh, in some scale, is, is the need to fight. And I don't mean fight as in physically fight or physically have conflict, but that if you're ever seen as someone that, that runs away from conflict, if you're ever seen as someone that's not prepared to hold their ground, which is often a woman's position, and this is me stereotyping, but I know as I grew up, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a thing to be argumentative, to be overly assertive. But that if you're in an environment that is very male dominated and you don't speak up and you don't hold your ground and you let yourself be intimidated, then you will be, whether whether it's deliberate or not. And so that would be my advice, which is is you've got to, to a certain extent, play the game as you see it played. And that means you have to establish your position. You know, have a backbone of steel, but don't let that make you aggressive and don't let that turn you into the bad behaviors that you may see around you. Um, that then they're not the same, but it, it it is not necessarily a feminine trait to walk into a room and say, I'm not going to give on this. And sometimes you have to do that. And lastly, how do you see the mining industry developing over the next five or 10 years? Um, and what direction would you like the industry to move towards? Obviously, you're outside of the industry now. So uh, if you had a magic wand. How would you envisage the mining industry um, developing over the next five or 10 years? Uh, well, I think the first thing that is already happening, but I think needs to happen on a much broader scale, is, is being able to explain the relevance of mining to the future generations. You know, that it's seen, again, as part of the solution and not part of the problem, as it's seen as part of the future and not part of the past. So it has to shed off a lot of the baggage that it has come with, you know, colonial past, exploitation, 
um, inequality of treatment of, you know, whether it's indigenous populations, whether it's women, whether it's, um, you know, whatever it is, it, it has to truly embrace that it is going to be something different. And it may need to overreact in order to just bring it back to a more neutral position that other industries don't face that same challenge with. So I think that's the first. I think the second is that it needs to understand how it can deliver the same outcomes without requiring the same work-life balance from future generations, because they're just not willing to do it. You know, I, I was just last week, I was at a graduate conference with Gen Zs or however they describe it. And their expectation, one is that they want to save the world. Now, it might be that we've got a particular type, but this, this responsibility they seem to have on their shoulders that it's their job to fix things. And so you have to be able to illustrate to them how they can fix things. The other is that their, their, their sense of their own rights, you know, what, what is, what is, um, what can they expect to receive is way higher than mine ever was at their age. You, you know, so, so this balance of power between you should be grateful that you have a job versus you should be grateful that I'm working for you. You know, the mining industry is still in this. You should be grateful that you have a job and I'm just going to pay you more so that you're more grateful. That doesn't, you know, from my observations, that's not what motivates. It, it motivates a certain type of person, but that's probably not the person you want in the company. You know, someone that is purely monetary driven is, is ultimately not going to look at the round and the whole. And so how do you create an environment where actually you're attracting people that prioritize other things over than earning a living in order to get them to, to come and work for you? And I don't think, I don't think mining actually has that yet. Um, because it's a challenging industry in challenging locations. And ultimately, there's only so much you can give. But I think the companies that are, are able to solve that problem, that use technology to do so, that understand remote working, that that look at all of these different things and think, how can you adjust in order to deliver a different work environment, I think will be the more successful going forward. Captain, really appreciate your time in uh, showing us your your wisdom and your and your thoughts. Obviously, you're out of the industry now, um, but it's good to get a perspective of, I suppose, a related industry and your and some of the learnings that you that you've gathered being in a senior position with one of the biggest or biggest gold mining companies in the world. Um, so, really appreciate your time and sharing sharing your thoughts. And I'm sure our listeners um, can take a, a few things away from from this uh, podcast. So really appreciate your time again. Um, and those that are listening, um, hope you enjoyed that episode. There's a lot of things to take away. Um, so appreciate if you can share this episode amongst others that you know in the industry, um, because there's certainly a few golden nuggets in there um, to help educate people within the mining industry um, that can obviously listen to some of the content that was produced today. So until next time, happy mining thank you for listening remember to reach out to rob via the show notes and be sure to subscribe and leave a review until next time happy mining helping each other to improve the mining industry